Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, <laughs> contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome my guest tonight, author, film historian, journalist, former New York Times Hollywood correspondent, Algene Harmetz. Hi, Algene. Hi, Ben. That's actually, this is Steve. No worries. Uh, you can say hi to Ben, too. <laughs> I, I still can't tell you guys apart, so don't worry about it. And I'm joined by my wingman tonight, two-time Emmy-nominated television comedy writer and screenwriter and a great friend and also my writing partner, Billy Reback. Hi, Billy. Hey, how are you? How's everybody? Well, we're great to be here with Al Jean, who in many ways, Al Jean, you're our hero for the work you've done in film uh, hist history work and as a journalist. But Billy, I I'll let you have the have the microphone for a quick story. Oh, no, just it's I think it's appropriate. It's it's really kind of a great story. Uh, just in the lot. This happened an hour ago. I was in the lobby of my building. and There's a woman who lives in my building who is 102, will be 103 years old in two weeks. And she's incredible. She's got a great sense of humor. Her eyesight is perfect. Her hearing is still good. She has a walker. It's the only thing. Anyway, she was standing in the lobby with her walker. And her son was outside because he came to pick her up for dinner. And he motioned for her to start moving to the, uh, to the car. And he said, Mommy, you're coming. She said, I'm going to make a move. I just don't know when. <laughs> it was it was fantastic uh the brain is totally sharpened you know the whole point is that you got a sense of humor you can go for a long time right isn't that great that was great, that was great. very funny so algene you're you're a rarity you are actually a california native um, um oh no not quite oh Ah, controversy immediately. <laughs> uh, uh, I came out uh, in my mother's arms at the age of uh, about 11 or 12 months. From where, oh, where, did, where did you come from? I was born in New York. Actually, my mother tells me, uh, but one can't always trust mother's stories that I was uh, delivered by the same doctor who delivered Franklin Roosevelt's children. Let's, let's pretend it's true because it's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, according to some of the online sources, which of course can sometimes be suspect, your mother- They're like mothers. Like, like mothers. You, you, your mother worked in the wardrobe department of MGM. Is that true? Yes. So you must tell me about uh, that. Uh, are you from a show business family or was your mom the first? Um, that's a rather complicated. But uh, what happened is uh, even in those days, there was uh, uh, nepo not nepotism, but uh, if you knew somebody, 
or if somebody came in this case from the small town in Pennsylvania where my mother grew up, um, they, uh, you know, were helpful in the future. And after my grandmother died, my mother had to go to work and the, friend, the enabler from the small town uh, uh, was uh, going to MGM to be the head of the wardrobe department. So he brought my mother along as his secretary. She ended up as assistant head of the department. Oh, wow. Was, yeah. That, that's amazing. Do you think there. that influenced your obsession with the Wizard of Oz? Uh, no, actually. Uh, I think my obsession started with seeing the movie and being terribly afraid of the witch. Yeah, weren't, weren't we all? I was 28, so that's kind of pathetic. <laughs> So you you were born you were born in 1929. So you were 10 years old. Do you remember seeing it in the big theater? Uh, no, I don't have any idea of when I saw it. I just know that the one moment a lot of people in the movie are very afraid. A lot, a lot of people who see the movie are very afraid of the winged monkeys. Right. Uh, but what frightened me was the witch appearing with her incredible. <laughs> the cackle, the cackle, yeah. Uh, yeah the cackle uh, in the, uh, the ball as, uh, as Dorothy is attempting to talk to, to Aunt M through the magic wall. Oh yeah, ball. that's a, that's a, ter- that a terrifying a moment. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. scared me to death. <laughs> Bill, um, Bill, Billy, and, Billy and I read somewhere that The Wizard of Oz is the, the most seen movie in history because not only does every kid always see it, but there are repeated viewings over and over again. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so and also what Steve and I have noticed is that The Wizard of Oz is mentioned somewhere. There's some reference almost every day during baseball games. They'll make references, analogies. It really is unique in that sense. There's no other movie that gets alluded to so often. Kind of incredible, isn't it? Um, I don't know. At this point, I think uh, that Star Wars probably is catching up. <laughs> of course. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's true. It's true, but it had a pretty good. It had a pretty good run, like an eighty-year run. It's not bad, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So your your mom's uh, your, your mom's working in wardrobe at MGM. Do you come out to the studio much? Are you on the MGM lot as a child? It was a different world then. 
a totally different world? And yes is the answer. Um, I started uh, <laughs> my first memories of MGM actually are of the Christmas gifts that my mother got from wow. uh, people who made costumes, uh, that is to say sold the material for costumes and some of the stars at uh, MGM and some of them gave me books. Uh, and uh, I got to open all of her presents. Right. And I was, about, I was about six at that time when we printed out. And she was at MGM in 1939 when so the movie was made. Okay, so that's rather ironic. It's kind of perfect, isn't it? Uh, yeah. But so do we know? Do we do we know as a matter of fact that your mom contributed to the wardrobe for the Wizard of Oz? We broke it down. That's what her job. Part of her job was was to tell what kind of costume. Uh, the actors and actresses should be wearing in scenes was um, uh, so-and-so was Greer Garson going to be in a bathrobe uh, was uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart going to be wearing a, a tie um, that was that was one of her major jobs when she was there. Was That's to... great. I need I need her right now to tell me what to wear tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so Algene, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Let me tell you when my serious connection with MGM started. Yeah, please. Other than being uh, afraid of uh, the witch. Of the witch and the bull, right? <laughs> Oh, actually, if I can digress a minute, Margaret Hamilton had a great story she told me. Please. Um, uh, when Margaret Hamilton was uh, taking the uh, Hermione Gingrich role in um, uh, A Little Night Music, uh, she was at a theater in Century City. And right, I lived in Century City. I'd pick her up at uh, midnight after the show, and then we'd sit in my kitchen and talk for two hours. Wow. And one of the things she told me that uh, I've never forgotten is that when she talks before audiences, uh, and she did do a lot of that. Um, right. Uh, they would always ask her uh, to give the witches a uh, cackle. And okay. when she did, she looked at them, and they were all audiences that had seen the film as children. Of course. And she said she, she could see for the first <laughs> couple of seconds that 
they were reacting exactly with the fear that they had when they were children. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That power lasts for decades. That's an incredible story. It, it, could yeah. be ar- it could be argued that Margaret Hamilton has the most famous laugh or cackle in the history of show business. Uh, cackle, yes. Laugh, I don't know. <laughs> did, did it bother her that people probably were afraid of her when they met her? And she was such a nice lady. Did, that, did it bother her that when people met her, they were probably afraid of her because of that role. And yet, from everything we've heard, she was the nicest person in the world. She was. And actually, she defended the witch. What she hated was yep. having to play Miss Goach. She said, Miss Goach, I mean, she was just very annoyed. She thought Miss Goach was terrible and she thought the witch had certain rather nice redeeming qualities right right (laughs) it's true it's true miss gutch was a horrible person wanted to kill her dog i mean my god that's true anyway uh my serious involvement with mgm started in a way that could never happen today i said it was a different world Right. I was 12 years old. I worked in the MGM fan department. Uh, I could type by that time. I learned to type and wrote my first short story when I was uh, 10. That story was uh, one page long and was about a talking dog that was captured by cannibals. Um, okay. <laughs> so you can see, I I uh, met um, uh, fantasy long before I met Oz. Right. Anyway, at the age of twelve, uh, I would uh, uh, essentially send replies not uh, written replies but the pictures mgm when people uh, when people uh, wrote in and you know wanted a a picture of their favorite star i would i would send them back the the little uh pictures of uh june allison greer garson and I, I learned an awful lot about what people thought about movie stars. I didn't know that at the time. You so know, interesting. I was simply, I was uh, 12. Um, I already had scrapbooks of movie stars that I cut out of the newspapers. But um, uh, I learned for one thing that uh, I sort of thought because of everything I read that all these letters would come from men who you know wanted uh, right a relationship right Right. this was at the early stages of tinder but it wasn't it was mostly from women 
or little girls who who wrote letters that said, I wish you were my mother or I wish you were my sister. Wow. Yeah. Very great surprise to me. I, I, you know, uh, lost a lot of, of things over the years because there's been so much, but some of them like that keep me I will I'll remember forever. Now Algene Algene, you're twelve. It seems a little odd to be working anywhere at twelve. Did you actually go into an office on the lot as a twelve year old? Absolutely. That's why I said it was a A different world. world. (laughs) And at uh, thirteen the next summer I had uh, a bigger job actually. I I uh, transferred information from one office to the next. You know, I was, uh, I'm not sure what you call that, but um, I would uh, uh, carry notes or carry uh, uh, envelopes uh, down from top floor to the bottom floor. Uh, I think Jerry Lewis. I think Jerry Lewis played one in a movie called The Aaron Boy. So, would you consider yourself an Aaron girl? I think that's a good way of saying it. Yes. Now you're You're like a walking interoffice memo. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So you're turning you're you're turning thirteen as World War II is beginning for the U.S. I believe Pearl Harbor took place shortly uh, before your birthday, in in forty one. What what are your earliest memories of that weekend? Um, I think I was twelve actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, because I was essentially born in um, uh, in uh, two thousand nine twenty nine. Right. Uh, I'm sorry, nineteen thirty. Uh, all my mother had to do was wait an extra day. Um, and I would have been a 1930 baby. So I, I believe that I was 12. Anyway, uh, I don't, uh, I don't remember really, uh, anything. I remember a lot about what the war was like for people who weren't actually in it, but the home, the home uh, land. Were you, were, home, you, uh, were, you li- were you living in, uh, in Culver City at that time? I think it was mentioned that you lived not far from the, uh, the lot number one. No, that's not true. I never lived in Culver. Oh, yes, I did live in Culver City in a rented, we had a rented house. Um, 
but we didn't move in to that till I was, uh, I think, a little older. Right. So you're working, Can I ask you about a couple of, uh, go ahead, go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say, so you're, you're a, um, you're an errand girl at MGM as the war is beginning to break out. How long did you stay at the studio? This was, these were summer jobs. Okay. Got it. So you were, you were a high school student in Beverly Hills High, I believe. Uh, at 13. Uh, no, I went through eighth grade at Flintridge Sacred Heart Academy. Uh, I was in a boarding school. And I think I was, yeah, I was in the boarding school when the war started. Got it. Billy, what were you I about to ask? I was just going to ask about a, you know, a couple of stories about the uh, the Wizard of Oz that it's hard to tell where they were accurate or not. I'm going to go to the source because you know everything. So does Judy start laughing in the middle of the movie? Is that accurate? Because if you look at a clip, it looks like she's laughing in Bert Lars' shoulder. Was that true or not true? I don't know. Oh, figured you would know that. No, it's, the clip is really interesting because he made her laugh really hard. And so it does appear that to cover up, she puts, she buries her face in her shoulder so we won't see her laughing and it stayed in the movie. It, if you find, it, you know, you can go to YouTube and find anything. It's pretty hilarious if you believe it's true. You know, once you go in with that belief, it looks like she is laughing, but you, you're not sure. You can't confirm or deny, correct? Correct. And okay. no people, uh, I'll take, uh, I will con deny two things. One, yep. Yep. Uh, I'm confirming nobody was killed. Hang, hanging, movie. right, 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 yeah, right. Nobody was hung. It was just a... Uh, uh, an illusion from the way the cameras and right. the sets were. And right. uh, I will confirm that a lot of the uh, uh, Munchkins got drunk, but <laughs> the reason they got drunk was because they were always being fed drinks by... Uh, regular uh uh people. people right right yeah why why Those were they doing that people. and well they were uh movie uh uh stars in a way right they were uh and they were interesting, new, novel. Sure. And so sure. Because, because of their size, uh, they got Didn't take a lot to get them drunk, food. right. <laughs> exactly. It That's wasn't cool. because they were oh. all... And the other thing that's been said was or has been written about was how lecherous they were. Right, 
right a great number of them were hypopituitary dwarfs who if anything have uh much less uh libido desire than uh uh people who are not a hypopituitary dwarfs so there were some dwarfs who were um essentially small versions of large people but <laughs> if you look at the movie you'll see all of the ones uh who actually were uh looking childlike right even as right. adults so, so how did those rumors start why did why did that begin all those stories about the lecturer lecherous attitude uh, possibly there were, you know, one or two problem right. people. And right. Like, like you have in any movie. Everything right. gets blown up. Well, certainly not helping the case was arguably one of the worst movies that Billy and I have ever seen related to The Wizard the of Rainbow. Oz, which is right. Under the Rainbow okay. with Chevy Chase. I, I just thought that movie was an abom abom abomination. <laughs> well, I tend to agree with you. <laughs> uh, you're a diplomat. That was good. So, so Algene, uh, you um, you obviously became a writer. When in your early life did you realize? I mean, you started to write short stories. When you were a high school student, did you um, did you think that uh, you would have a career as a writer? I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And my mother has collected uh, <laughs> my early writings. Um, and whether that's a plus or a minus, I'm not quite sure. Um, <laughs> but what I really wanted to do was win the Academy Award as an actress and as the writer of uh, the script at the same time. You and every person within 40 zip codes of us. Yep. No, it's a okay. lot of them just wanted to be writers. They wanted to be, other people wanted to be directors. If they were right. male, they wanted to be directors. Right. And, right. Uh, uh, but to go back to my association with MGM, uh, every day at lunch, when I, during the summers, I would take the tram uh, down to lot two or lot three, and I would like sit in front of Andy Hardy's house and have my lunch. Or uh, in one case, um, there, I used to, uh, I used to go to the lawn uh, in front of, uh, the uh, swimming pool, uh, Esther Williams. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, that that swimming yeah. pool that swimming pool is quite uh, visible in a number of episodes of the Twilight Zone, which uh, I covered in my book, The Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. 
which uh, is wonderful. Do you, uh, do you have any memories of actually seeing filmmaking? Do any films stand out from those summers that you can remember? Uh, no, uh, I never, I never saw a film being made. And did you have any interaction with any movie stars that come to mind? Obviously, you're sitting there having your lunch. Did you have encounters at all? Or you did, did you keep pretty much to yourself? Well, I don't, uh, I don't think that I wanted to be noticed. Because ah. somebody might come along and say, what are you doing here? Got it. Okay. So, so it was under the radar, yeah. not under the rainbow. Right. But how I, did was, you, okay, I was gonna, I, I've got a question out of nowhere. How did you get into writing obituaries of celebrities? That fascinates me. Uh, I was at the New York Times. Right. And uh, I saw it like uh, like a summation. Uh, there was a, a, a friend of mine, um, uh, Diane Johnson, a novelist with whom I wrote for television for a year. Um, uh, we actually got one thing, uh, we got two things made. Uh, but um, uh, she wrote a book called Lesser Lives and uh, somebody in the 19th century did the same thing, uh, summation of of a person's life. And that's what I saw the obituary as. And if you've read my obituaries, you'll know that that's what I was attempting to do in every one. Well, you, you certainly covered some of the greatest luminaries of all. I mean, I know you wrote from what I, what I heard, you wrote Billy Wilder's obituary and he's my hero, my idol. Do you remember anything of what you said about Billy? Uh, from his obituary, <laughs> or 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 at all. I mean, I I assume that yeah. you. I don't I don't know if they assigned oh, yeah. people to you or you chose people, but yeah, whatever whatever you want to tell us. So just any any tidbit that will get me excited because I I so admired the guy. Um, so did I. Uh, uh, I I really. I really liked him. And you know, you write an advanced obituary. I, I'm well aware, sure, sure. So yeah. So uh, um, when I wrote, uh, long before I wrote about Billy Wilder, I had interviewed him. Ah. Uh, and if you've read Oz, you know that he's actually quoted at the very beginning as to what the studio system was like at that time. I don't, I don't think, I'm not familiar with that. Tell us, please. Yeah, well, I think I'll quote it for you. Okay. Then, okay. Uh, certainly, certainly a yeah. lot different than it is today. 
Uh, yes, but let me. Let me for, the, for the people uh, who are listening, we're interviewing Algene Harmetz, who among her literary works is a wonderful book on the making of The Wizard of Oz, which we all keep in our libraries as a treasured resource. And certainly no one has dug deeper into mythos, the mythos of that making of that film than Algene, but she's about to quote I think it's something. continuously in print for about 75 years, something like that. It's, it's, it's like never goes out of print. Yeah, it has never been out of print and it's had six publishers over the Incredible. years. Incredible. The current publisher is um, uh, Chicago Review Press. Which is the same company that published my Twilight Zone encyclopedia and my James Bond movie encyclopedia. So we are kindred spirits. And I also I have nothing noticed... to plug, nothing to plug whatsoever. <laughs> and I... thank you, Billy. I also uh, have to say that I was a college newspaper writer for the Daily Bruin at UCLA, and you were a college newspaper writer at Stanford. Yep. Absolutely. There you go. You should get married. <laughs> you have a lot of give a lot in common. What was the what was the Billy Wilder quote? I want to hear that. Yeah, that's what I'm uh, trying to uh, do. When I write a book, I can never. Uh, I ha I have to know what I am. Uh, I have to know what my first paragraph is do you feel the okay. same way that i can't go further until i'm sure that uh it's my that's interesting do you feel the same way i have i have no reference point well it, it, we can apply it to our screenwriting that when we sit down to write a script um we jump right into it uh for some reason we we get inspired immediately with where that first scene is and that gets us going. But in, in book writing, it's a whole different thing. But um, I don't really have a super reference to that, but uh, I completely understand what well, you're saying. Remember, Steve, remember when you wrote it was a dark and stormy night? <laughs> I think that's probably, probably the most repeated opening line in anything. Yes, I think, I think so. I think so. Um, are you having I'll trouble finding I'll the Wilder thing? If so, we can move on, clearly. Yeah, well, I'll just, uh, I am having, uh, I'm having problems, but essentially what he, what he said, said about the studio system at that time yep. was that it was uh, essentially a, a number of little fiefdoms uh, okay. And and that the people at one studio uh, knew nothing of the people at the next, uh, or had no relationships with the people at the next one. Um, I'm sorry that I couldn't come up with his actual quote, which is absolutely much better. <laughs> well, he had a lot of time to put this one together. Let me let me jump in. Let me jump in and, and ask you. Uh, tell us how you actually came to write the Wizard of Oz uh, 
story because uh, it, that was a tremendous research project. What was the the inciting incident to compel you to write that? Uh, I uh, I hate to tell you <laughs> that uh, that's going to let you down. And sorry we'll, we'll keep it among that. us. We won't tell anybody. Okay. Uh, the person who was passionate about Oz was uh, an agent, uh, not an agent, um, editor. An editor, yeah, at um, at um, was your first publishing company. Uh, yeah, at, um, okay, I've had six of them. Well, we can see oh, McMillan, Simon and Schuster, Doubleday. No, no, no. I'm sorry, I have been. It's okay, Come it's on. all right. Um, anyway, they said to you. It's, um. Well, according to this, it, is it NOP? Yeah, it's NOP. Yeah. Wor Not, worst the, name ever. No way to pronounce that word. <laughs> the original publishing date for your first edition was 1977. Would that be accurate? Yes. But, okay. um, well, actually, well, yes, it was 77, and I joined the Staff at the Times. I'd been writing for the Times since '69, but I joined the staff as soon as I came back from my uh, tour for the book. Okay. So I joined the staff of the Times in 1978. Yeah. Now, what do you mean? So the editor approached you. What happened? Uh, he had turned out tried two other uh, writers. Uh, she was absolutely passionate about the movie and had convinced Knopp to, uh, to publish a book about the movie. And she right. had tried two other writers. I turned out I didn't know this at the time. Um, but uh, uh, when she um, she then came to me having read some of the the articles that I'd written um, for the New York Times because I started writing for the New York Times in 1969 for a marvelous editor by the name of Seymour Peck and. Okay. And uh, that was for the arts and leisure section because he was sure. the editor of the arts and leisure section. Algene, had, had, Seymour, had Seymour read some of your material from another source? Uh, uh, had he seen some of your articles from something else? Yes. And 
uh, he had uh, read me in the L.A. Times, I think, because I freelanced for the L.A. Times at that time. And But what? more than actually, more than that, it, my husband, uh, I'm, I'm not someone who puts myself forward. Uh, and I would never have done this, but my husband, born and raised in Brooklyn, uh, <laughs> went back it all. to uh, New York uh, at w one time. And uh, uh, we tri came back to New York, actually. Uh, and I met all of, you know, his family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he brought in a number of my articles and handed them to, to Seymour Peck. Wow. And I'm wow. not quite sure what he said, but when I got home, when we came back from the trip, there was a frantic telegram from Peck saying to call him because though my husband had brought in the articles, he hadn't thought to give Peck, you know, any any phone number or, or there was not email at that time, but right. uh, only an address. Um, so uh, that was how I got started. And my first article was... Uh, on uh, um, uh, you know, it was um, fifty years ago. I mean, my God. Yeah, it was well, but you remember these things. The problem is that when you are overwrought and and having to extend your taxes and have a husband that recently died. Oh, there so sorry, my God. Some things that you uh, don't remember terribly well. Um, of course. Now, of you, course, course. you mentioned that you went on a tour. Was this- well, hold on, can we go, Steve, can we go, can we go back? Can we go back? Because he was in the middle of the story about the uh, female editor who approached her after she'd approached two other writers who didn't work out. So, right. so what happened? Because you said she was the one who was passionate about Oz, not particularly you. So how, how did it uh, ultimately work out? Uh, what happened was uh, that uh, I wrote 10,000 words. Uh, no. No, I, yeah, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote what would uh, supposedly be the first uh, part of the book. And she came, you know, she read it and she came back to me and said it was terrible. Whoa. Uh, Whoa! Yeah. You get paid to do that? What? Did you get? Did they no. pay you? To, no. To, on, no. Wow. You don't, you don't get paid. On spec, uh, and she said it was terrible. So what happened then? 
she said that she didn't actually say, I don't think she was terrible. Um, but that was the idea. Uh, right, okay. Uh, she said it, you know, sounded like a magazine article. Sounded like an article. Uh, okay. And I, of course, you know, got my start writing for the fan magazines. Right, uh, right. And uh, something, by the way, that I uh, uh, I think I describe as learn, earn as you learn. Yeah. Uh, it, okay. Sure. It was really a, a good beginning. Um, let, let me let me just let me just jump in just for, let let me just jump in for a second for reference. What were some of the names of the fan magazines you wrote for before you joined the New York Times? Uh, well, the uh, three big magazines at that time were uh, um, uh, Photo Play which was uh, the best motion, pic uh, motion picture and uh, and um, what was the name of the other one? Um, Something Screen maybe? Was it Screen Digest? I'm... No, no, it wasn't. Um, but I want to... I wanna, okay, I, don't make yourself crazy. We, I, I just I, want to know how you turned around from if you didn't love it to you ended up writing a book that's now a classic. So how, how did that happen? Well, what she said to me was details and examples. Ah, details and examples. There you go. That's the lesson. I went home and I sat for three days in a chair uh basically unmoving <laughs> and then i got up and i rewrote the first ten thousand words and wow. i'm very much in victoria's debt it's, it's so, a, so that's a great story so you so, hold on steve one, just one thing so the, your ability to withstand criticism and grow from it really changed your life, which is a phenomenal lesson, right? Yeah, it certainly was. But Vicki Wilson really uh, uh, is, you know. Um, Everybody has one person in their life who really inspires them and, and turns things around. Not everybody, but a lot of people and so it was for you it was vicky wilson it's, it's a tremendous story so i'll yes, change it certainly was so to start your research you're you're saying that you did went go on a tour and you found people from the making of the wizard of oz all over the country or was it mostly in la um it was mostly in la uh you know my two major books are Casablanca 
uh, about Casablanca and about the Wizard of Oz. And the Casablanca and, is supposed to be the definitive book on Casablanca from, from everybody's pen. Everybody has written that that is really the source, which is fantastic. Uh, but writing them was, or or finding how to write them was very different because I started Oz 30, 30 years, I think I started after the movie was made. Right. Uh, and with Casablanca, it was 50 years later. And so almost everybody was dead. With Oz, uh, the the central writer was alive, the author of... uh, Nola Langley, right? Right. Uh, He was alive. Uh, uh, The people who had died were the other pair of writers and Judy Garland, unfortunately. Right, uh, and um, and you got uh, Ray Bolger, I think. I got yes, uh, and Bert Lahr was dead. Right, and, and the uh, and the director Victor Fleming was dead. Fleming was dead. The other director, though, was alive. The uh, director of the Kansas sequence. Um, but I was able to interview and interview it at great length. Uh, uh, people from uh, Bolger, um, Margaret uh, Hamilton. Well, yeah, Margaret Hamilton, of course. Uh, but even down to Gail Sondergaard, who was almost the Wicked Witch. <laughs> You know, that right. Mervyn Leroy, the director of the movie, whom I also interviewed, but that right. was a, a sort so of one, one of out. One of the stories, of course, uh, that you bring out in your book is the fact that uh, L.B. Mayer, uh, or I'm not sure who brought up the idea, somebody brought up the idea of having Shirley Temple play Dorothy, and uh, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, most people didn't realize that she was up for Dorothy, and obviously that would have been a tragedy not to have Judy. How close was the production to getting Shirley? Uh, it was L.B. Mayer who wanted Shirley Temple. And it wouldn't lend her, I think, right? That's right. Fox refused to lend her. And at that point, um it was the um uh, the the person who wanted uh um the the person who wanted Shirley uh who wanted uh, Judy Garland uh the two were the two musicians Arthur Freed, who, of course, as you oh, know, yeah. within a few years was the greatest producer of musicals in Hollywood. Right, um, right. Uh, and, um, 
and uh, another writer whose name I am uh, not. Are you are you thinking of uh, Harburg? Yep, Harburg. No, no, this was long before. I mean, Harburg. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're saying writers who had nothing to do with the film felt that Judy was going to be the perfect person right. to sing those songs. Exactly. Well, here's a question that you lead me right into it. How close did Over the Rainbow come to being cut? Uh, what happened was that uh, in those days, a lot of uh, the studios would take the train, the uh, 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 the train down to some podunk place to do a preview. <laughs> and, right. Uh, and uh, a lot of the lots producers would go along, and so that was the case with the Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. And. Studio uh, uh, producers were shocked and told Mayor, "You could not have one of MGM's movie stars uh, singing in a barnyard." Literally, oh my God! That's a oh true my story. That's that insanity. Absolutely true story. Maybe the most beautiful uh, scene in the, in movie history. I mean, that's incredible. By, by the way, um, um, I was just going to say true. that the person who was responsible for directing her in that barnyard was not Victor Fleming, but uh, I believe it was King Vidor, correct, uh, Algin? Yes. Yes, it was King Vidor, whom I also interviewed. Um, Amazing. Because Fleming, Fleming, Fleming had gone off to, he was uh, seconded to Gone with the Wind, correct? Correct. So what we're saying is had nothing to do with the quality of the song, the story it told, how it set up the entire movie. Just they didn't want her to be seen in a barnyard. Exactly. <laughs> and it was, it was Arthur Freed who talked uh, L.B. Mayer out of it. Oh, uh, it's an, it's... It, yes, I know. But <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling. Are... Movies are a collection of accidents, almost always. That's well you know, said. That's I'm, I'm, sure. I'm curious, when you were doing your research, did you wander over to the old MGM lot and, and take a look around some of the old sound stages, or did you not do that? Nope. What I did uh, uh, was spend days in the MGM basement looking through every single version uh, of the script. Wow. The version wow. by Noel Langley, the version written by uh, the uh, team of... Um, uh, Is that Florence Ryerson and Edgar Wolf? And Edgar, Edgar Allen Wolf. Right. Yeah. And how much did they change? <clears throat> well, what I discovered, I had thought there was going to be a perfect script 
someplace, but there never was was the case where the scripts got better and better because uh, uh, Ryerson and Wolf would add something that was terrible but had one good thing in it, which uh, luckily would then, when he took the script over, uh, was brought back on, would eliminate all of her uh, 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 sort of fantastic stuff about having, I'm not sure even what, um, but, uh, but, um, uh, uh, Langley, uh, uh, Langley, uh, created the idea of the barnyard, uh, Ryerson, uh, and Wolf, uh, then added Professor Marvel to it. Really? But what's really fun was to look at all of the writers uh, who didn't make the cut. There were 10 that, that, that was typical, was typical during those days. Now, Algene, uh, um, let me ask you a question. Um, the general feeling or um, the general um, understanding is that the Wizard of Oz on its first release in 39 was not as big a success as the studio wanted. Is that accurate? Well, it was a very expensive movie. And though it's a, a movie about, uh, a movie for children, basically, or was at that time, it was right. very expensive. Um, And uh, and children got into the movies for very little cents. or free, right? Right. Yeah, the twenty-five cents, and so it didn't make all that much money. It became a sensation essentially when it went on television for the first time, and I think nineteen fifty-six. Probably when I saw it, I was three yeah, years all, old. I think I think we were all watching it at that time. I think it may have right. been I, CBS. Go ahead, Billy. No, just going back. You know, it's. I think this is ironic. Algene, you said a few minutes ago that a movie. The quote was that a movie is a collection of accidents, which to me is ironic because there were several accidents on the uh, literal accidents on the Oz set. Um, when you spoke to Margaret Hamilton, I'm sure you remember this. What what was the story when she got burnt during that scene? How horrible was that? Uh, well, what happened was that when the uh, the witch disappears right. from Munchenland, uh, what she does is step on an elevator, right, and the elevator goes down to the floor and leaving 
her hat and her uh, cape. Broomstick. Behind. Right, right, the cape. Right, 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 right. She had her broomstick with her. Right, 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 right. And when she, uh, when they did the first take, it came off like clockwork. But uh, never satisfied. <laughs> After lunch, um, uh, Victor Fleming wanted to do it again. And by that time, everybody was sort of, you know, Tired. they were full, they were uh, not, not really at the top of their game. Excited. Yeah, buy it. Uh, they'd done it before. And the fire that comes up when the witch goes down came up mm -hmm. at the wrong moment. Oof. And and what Margaret Hamilton remembers is that uh, she was coming down to the uh, uh, to the floor and the two men that were there the uh, uh, to help her uh, off uh, ran towards this elevator and and uh, pulled her and at that point she saw that she was on fire the broomstick was had caught fire oh my and god burned uh, her hand and her face. And wow. of course she was in shock, but she was rushed over to the infirmary and the, uh, the man who did, who was in charge of uh, all the um, uh, uh, Onset accidents. No, uh, all the. Um, uh, I'm not even sure. I guess cosmetics. Uh, oh. uh, uh, what 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 is that job called? Um, a makeup artist. Well, you talking about makeup. Makeup, yeah, the makeup artist. Um, uh, he uh, he immediately started brushing her face, and it, she said it was the most terrible pain she had ever oh, had. Oh God! And oh my she God! Could hardly keep from crying out. But you know, she was a gentlewoman, and gentlewomen didn't cry. And uh, I mean, not in public, at least. And right. Uh, and uh, when he was through having wiped all of the makeup off her face, um, he said, you know, he apologized, but he said, if, if I hadn't done that, there's copper in that makeup. And if I hadn't done it, it would have burned all the way through your yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's incredible. As it is, they had to shut down for a couple of weeks, right? No. It, you know that when uh, <laughs> there were three, there were, there were essentially, if you consider that a makeup uh, accident, 
um, there were two others. Uh, right. And that was when uh, Buddy Epson was poisoned by his makeup. Or by the, the makeup, right. And uh, ended up in the hospital. And to tell you how MGM and all the studios worked at that time, uh, he got a call or the next uh, 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 morning saying, when are you going to be back on the set? <laughs> a tremendous He's empathy, I said, right. Set. He's in an oxygen tent. Yeah, they were, they, they were cattle. They were wow. uh, for for yeah. the for the listeners who are are digesting all this wonderful information from Algin, um, Buddy Epson was first cast to play the Tin Man, uh, and uh, he became allergic to the uh, the paint, the silver paint. Which uh, what was it in the paint, uh, Algin? Was it like an aluminum base or something like that? Yes. Right, and of it course he became. Became deathly but ill. You're missing, the, you're missing the first part of the Epson story. Epson, which was, was quite well known as a dancer. The song and dance man, right, a thousand percent. He was to play the scarecrow, but Ray Bolger, who had seen the stage play of the of the that uh, Wizard of Oz when he was a kid or who had seen the stage play and uh, not of the wizard yeah i think them no i'm anyway who had anyway uh he he uh wanted the part of the scarecrow and unlikely to change the minds of the studio he did change uh, the mind of L.B. Mayer and Mayer uh, and, and Epsom was perfectly happy to become the Tin Man instead. And until, his, until he got poisoned. Yes. Right. You were about to say a third makeup. You have uh, Margaret, you've got Buddy. What was the third one? The third one was uh, um, uh, the Tin Man, uh, because uh, once that uh, Jack that, Kaylee, uh, well, no, once that Epson was poisoned by the makeup, right. they did something different, and they uh, put. Uh, the makeup on uh, uh, Haley's face, and uh, he got a very bad eye infection. Oh, God. From the we did not know that. So then they had to make yet another adjustment, I guess. So it went through the whole town. Uh, I'm not sure what they, how they changed it after that. But. Um, wow. That's, you, that's great. Your, so he, did, in, he almost in, didn't. He didn't have a heart, and he almost didn't have any eyes. That's, that's, that's <laughs> a very different story. In, in your re, in your research, Al Jean, did you ever interview a monkey? No, 
I did not. <laughs> but I, I assume that. there. I assume that. I think you interviewed a number of Munchkins, including Jerry Marin. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I, I met Mr. Marin. For those yeah. of for those of you who don't know who Jerry Marin is, Jerry Marin was the lollipop kid who was of the three boys who come out and give uh, Judy a lollipop. You know, we could probably talk for another two hours just on the Wizard of Oz, but I've got to wrap this up. You know, uh, Algene, <clears throat> if you're up for it, I would love to devote an evening just to Casablanca one night, because I know you've got wonderful Casablanca stories. Would you would you come back to us, please? Uh, do I get a copy of what your final version of this is? Sure, sure. Is You're live we're, at the moment. We're not live. We're taping, and you will get a copy of it absolutely. And uh, uh, we always send out the copies. This has been wonderful. We've been speaking with Algene Harmetz, my partner Billy Reback, and I have been uh, interviewing the world's leading authority on a number of things, but certainly the Wizard of Oz is one of our favorites and all of our favorites. Uh, uh, it, it's been great. And like I said, we could probably go longer, but I think we're gonna cut it off now. Um, on well, I'd, I'd like to just follow through on the accidents for uh, a Please. couple of minutes. Um, and uh, and uh, with Margaret Hamilton, because you did say something that was incorrect. You said okay. they shut it. They shut it down. For well, Margaret she wasn't Hamilton. available, obviously, right, for, for a little while. Right. Yeah, but what happened when Buddy Epson was hurt? was he was simply taken out of the picture and replaced. And that would have happened to Margaret Hamilton too. After all, she had a very small part. Right. Uh, you know, the witch was only on screen, I believe for, well, her whole performance was only on screen for something like 18 minutes. Wow, okay. Uh, and, so how did she but, avoid that? She avoided it because they were about to, sh they did not need her for a scene uh, immediately. And it was Christmas time. They shut down for Christmas. Uh, I knew not they closed down. That was the reason. Something. Got it. So, so Christmas, Christmas saved the Wicked been, Witch. Yeah, that's right. That was, she says she would have been uh taken out of the picture uh, she would have wow. been re it would have been recast if That's they had needed her but what wow. happened uh 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 with her had, was about the same thing that happened with buddy epson in terms of somebody from the studio calling and saying, uh, you know, when would she be available to come back? And that was again the next day. And her doctor, you know, got on the phone and said, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, you know, you know, don't call us again, essentially. That's fantastic. Um, wow. Wow. 
So the mayor was a tyrant. I mean, there was just no humanity of any kind. Right. You know, they were essentially uh, widgets. Well, you said cattle. No, cattle. Cattle or widgets on the assembly line. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful, Al Jean. Um, uh, you ha- everybody, um, you've been listening to the Lock 22 Network. Our producer has been Shrewsbury. Uh, we've been joined by Billy Reback. And of course, our guest tonight, Al Jean Harmitz. And we'd love to have her back to talk about Casablanca and maybe a little bit more Oz. Thank you so much for joining us, Al Jean. You are very welcome. And please, please, please stay well. Please stay well and keep that wonderful mind active. Thank you so much. And everybody, thanks for joining Saturday Night at the Movies. This is Steve Rubin, your host. And today is always Saturday for us. We all love movies and we've been treated to a wonderful series of stories about one of the greatest movies of all time. Good night, everyone.